Welcome to New Books and Buddhist Studies with Alex Carroll. In her recent ethnography, Guardians of the Buddha's Home, Domestic Religion and Contemporary Jodo Shinshu, Professor Jessica Starling invites us into the daily lives of the Bomori, the spouses of priests and the Japanese Jodo Shinshu, or true Pure Land tradition. Focusing on domestic religion, Professor Starling shows us how the Bomori create community by cleaning the temple altar, how they express gratitude for their salvation by carefully managing temple donations, and how they inspire faith by serving a cup of tea. This is a truly rare and intimate glimpse into the lives of one of Buddhism's most overlooked figures, the temple wives. Jessica, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'd like to begin by asking you a little bit about your professional background and how you first became interested in this field of study. Yeah, sure. Um, I think a lot of people uh, get into the study of Buddhism because they're first interested in Buddhism, sometimes in the practice of Buddhism or the philosophy. Um, And that wasn't the case with me. I think my more long-running interest is just in religion. Um, I grew up in the South, sort of on the border of the Bible Belt. So, you know, within my extended family, there's uh, sort of a, a mixture of kind of fundamentalist Christians, recovering ex-evangelicals, um, unaffiliated spiritual speaker, seekers, and sort of uh, post-religious atheists, right? So I was always kind of really interested in how all these people were part of one family and, you know, what it meant to be more or less religious. Um, and all of these kinds of different religious identities seem to sort of rely on a a kind of a narrow definition of religion. And I just kind of um, always thought about that and wondered about that. And when I went to um, college at uh, Guilford College in North Carolina, um, I majored in religious studies and um, kind of just took a broad comparative approach um, and didn't particularly specialize in Buddhism. I took a few classes in in Buddhism. Um, But basically I had a connection to Japan, probably what my informants would call a karmic connection. Um, my dad had been stationed in, at an Air Force base in Kyushu before I was born during the Vietnam War. So I'd always been also very curious about Japan, kind of in parallel to my interest in religion. So I ended up going there to teach English after I graduated um, and sort of learned Japanese as I taught elementary school kids uh, English, even though I learned more Japanese than they learned English. Um, and this is where I first encountered Buddhism sort of in person. Um, I think the, my hosts there, I worked at a board of education. They took me to, uh, they, they knew that I was interested in religion, which they probably thought was very odd. Um, and they took me to, uh, just a, a local Buddhist temple. Um, and my experience there really kind of lit the, um, Lit, lit the the candle of this this idea or this question that eventually became my book. They took me um, and of course showed me the main hall and wanted to kind of show off their their main image, which was of Amida Buddha because it was it happened to be a Pure Land temple, a true Pure Land temple. Um, and then they sort of took me off to a side room, a reception room, and we sat down. And this woman brought tea in and left, and she was just wearing lay clothes. No one ever mentioned who she was or introduced her to me or anything. And she just receded from view. And I was so fascinated. I was like, is she just like a, an assistant? Is she, you know, an administrative assistant or a servant or, you know, who is this woman? Um, and it took really kind of a while for me to piece together that, you know, priests in Japan just marry. Um, and it's just not something that I would have learned in college. Like how did I take whole entire classes on this religion and just sort of not know that? 
Um, and so I was really fascinated by this gap, I guess, in sort of the presentation or the study of Buddhism in, in college and just what it looks like uh, on the ground in Japan. Um, so I kind of took that um, that tension or that question with me into graduate school at the University of Virginia. Um, still kind of felt as if these were a little like parallel lines or parallel discourses about Buddhism, the sort of Buddhism as lived in, in Japan uh, and this um, world religion that I was learning about in graduate school through its, its ancient texts and philosophies and whatnot. Um, and so as I was searching for a dissertation project, I gravitated toward this topic of, of temple wives. Um, and as I was sort of trying to read around about what I could explore about them, I, you know, unsurprisingly sort of found there's just not really much out there um, in terms of scholarship on this. There was really only uh, Steve Covell's book, uh, Temple Buddhism, by the time I was, you know, writing my dissertation prospectus, um, which would have been about 2007 or 2008, I think, um, ended up choosing choosing to focus on the Jodo Shinshu because this was a tradition of Buddhism in Japan that had never been celibate in its history. Uh, the monks had not been celibate, so they had presumably always had this married couple leading their congregations since the medieval period. Um, and even so, there still wasn't a lot out there, either in English or in Japanese, in terms of scholarship about what that meant to have, you know, a married uh, clerical partnership. So I decided there was a lot uh, of work that I could do in that area. So that's how I settled on that. All right. And so before we get into the book itself, I'd like you to introduce the reader to what they can expect to find in their book. Yeah. Um, so it's an ethnography. Um, and it's basically uh, a book about the contemporary Jodo Shinshu, which is translates to true Pure Land Buddhism. It's the tradition of Buddhism founded by Shinran um, that puts that takes the the wife, the temple wife, as the center of the story, and sort of looks at the world of lived Buddhism through her perspective. Um, so, um, and it does that in six chapters. Um, I look at sort of what you might call material religion, the kind of material and even economic or home economic, as I call it, dimensions of practice um, centered at the temple, her interactions with lay people, receiving gifts from the laity, how they determine to, how to um, give, uh, what would you call like an honorarium to visiting priests, just all of these kind of material exchanges that a temple wife um, oversees and the kind of daily quotidian just elements of life living in a temple that is also you know, thought to be the home of the Buddha. They have the main hall with the, that image of Amida at all of these temples. And um, there's also this family living there and um, just kind of looking at how, um, whether it's demarcated or not, or actually more fluid, how the space is sort of divided in a temple between the residential sort of domestic sphere and this more public um, section of their home that is, you know, devoted to Buddhist worship and hosts the laity and things like that. I was wondering if we could take a little bit of time to uh, talk about some background about, you know, what is Shin Buddhism? How's it practiced? Uh, what a Bomori is? Uh, what do they do? And how do you become one? Um, I think this is very interesting that this, uh, that Shin Buddhism is part of Pure Land Buddhism. And that's actually a majority of Buddhists worldwide. But in the West, we know very little about it. Sure. Um, yeah. So uh, true Pure Land Buddhism or Jodo Shinshu is um, a Japanese sect um, of Pure Land Buddhism that. Um, you know, was founded by Shinran during the Kamakura period. And like many founders of new um, uh, new Buddhist sects in the Kamakura period, he had started out as a Tendai monk, um, which is the Japanese for Tantai Buddhism. So he had sort of studied all of it and um, also studied under um, Honen, who is 
sort of said to be the founder of just the Pure Land School in um, in Japan. And um, eventually, he just sort of became so uh, um, sort of I, I guess resigned to um, his inability to practice as a monastic, and really anyone's ability to practice as a monastic. Um, during what he saw as sort of latter age of the Dharma, Mapo, um, that he just said, you know, any any pretense to being a celibate monastic is really, it's just kind of vanity. Um, and so there's really no use in doing that. So he kind of embraced this neither monk nor layman identity. And um, he sort of was openly married. Um, there's a great book uh, out uh, based on uh, letters um, from his wife, Eshimi, who's also sort of a lay nun, um, that, uh, was, was written between, her, uh, Ashini and her daughter and Shinran comes up in some of it. Um, so essentially, he, he, uh, the tradition that he founded of true Pure Land Buddhism, um, kind of teaches that there's really just kind of the only way to salvation is through this radical dependence on other power, the power of Amida, which is called Tariki, other power. Um, and so there's really nothing for the individual practitioner to do other than radically entrust him, his or herself to uh, the Buddha, the Buddha's compassion. And so um, it was kind of always more of a lay oriented tradition than other forms of Buddhism, even from the beginning. And um, as it existed through the medieval and early modern periods, it was mostly um, based around these lay congregations rather than monasteries. Um, and there would often be, some of them were just entirely, you know, lay led like confraternities. And sometimes if they had, um, they would have a uh, the leader would be a kind of a clerical figure. Um, they would be called Bozu, which was the name for a, a monk um, during that time. Um, but they would also be married to someone called a Bomori, who it literally just means guardian of the temple uh, or guardian of the monk one way or the other. Um, and she just was the kind of partner of the Bozu from, from that time. Um, and then later, of course, in the end of the 19th, early 20th century, the other sects of Buddhism in Japan joined the Jodo Shinshu and no longer sort of enforcing or requiring celibacy. Um, and they kind of conceded that the, the priests no longer had to be celibate. But they've they really struggled, I think, with um, finding a, a, a positive or um, acceptable, meaningful kind of um, value or definition to this position of temple wife. Um, but the Jodo Shinshu has this longer history of this kind of married partnership leading these congregations. So they can draw from that, I think, in articulating her position. I'd like to ask you a little bit about your methodology and, and who you conducted your interviews with. How did you come in contact with them? I think that's a very interesting story. Yeah, um, I think I talk about this a little bit in my introduction. But um, I mean, if you're interested in essentially women in Buddhism, it's just really challenging to find good sources that aren't men writing about women, um, you know, in any, in any historical period in almost any of the different forms of Buddhism globally, it's just really hard to find good sources, right. That get at what women's actual experience has been. Um, and so that, in addition to just my kind of personal inclinations led me to take an ethnographic approach, uh, when I did my dissertation fieldwork. So, I mean, I sort of thought if I can't find any women's voices about their own experiences in the text, then I should just go ask them. Um, right. But uh, so I went to Japan. I had a um, I was hosted in Otani University, which is affiliated with one of the two major sects of Jodo Shinshu um, called the um, Otaniha. 
And um, I was hosted there and I had, um, that was my affiliation. And I sort of, I met some college students who were attending that that um, university because it's affiliated. Um, and I, I met, I was also introduced to um, officials at Higashi Honganji, which is the head temple of that sect. And then I kind of expanded my social network from there to um, folks in the Honganji Ha, which is the other major sect of the Jojo Shinshu. I had a friend who was attending seminary there um, and just kind of snowballed out to um, expand my social network and um, network of informants that way. Um, so I just did a lot of participant observation. There were several temples that I just spent a lot of time in just hanging around um, either when nothing was going on or when they were having a sort of one of their yearly um, scheduled rituals. I would help. Um, I often would just naturally go into the, the area of the temple where women were doing most of the work because that's where I would go. Um, I also had a, a young child when I got there and that actually was kind of um, a nice um, part of doing field work. I think um, t- temples are really family-friendly places in Japan. Um, and the people that I was trying to get to know better also were mothers. And so we really kind of connected on that level. I think it helped them to see me as a human being and um, not sort of a, a researcher that they were intimidated to talk to. Um, so I was able to bring my daughter to a lot of those things and it, it worked out really well. She still has friends who are temple kids <laughs> when we go back to Japan, she visits, yeah. You talk about how the Bomori challenge our understanding of what is public and private. And in your story just then, you talk about how there's this strong family uh, connection, but still in a public space of a, of a temple. How, how do they do that? You know, I think before I got to Japan, I assumed that there would be some really clear distinction between public and private. It's just so intuitive to us, to me, you know, growing up in the West, like there was just going to be, this is, this is a church and there's your house, right? I mean, even if you have married clergy in the West, um, they don't like the, the temp, the church itself isn't where they bring up their kids, you know, and then they don't pass it on to their kids. Um, so I really expected there to be some kind of clear distinction, but I just learned that there, there really wasn't, um, the kids go in and out of the temple. Um, the, the, the wife's role, um, as a temple kind of personnel and as a mother and a wife and a daughter-in-law are really not separated in any, in any meaningful way. Either, I mean, spatially, there tends to be more of a center of gravity for women's work back in the kitchen of the temple called the, the Kuri. Um, but she doesn't, I mean, all, her work and, and her movements extend into the main hall as well. I think some temples will have some kind of, um, limitations on who can go into the most inter- inner altar um, and do the decorating, but it, it's really kind of a local or regional um, custom. So in, in many temples, it is the wife who goes all the way in and places the, um, the, the rice that they offer to the Buddha every morning in the temple's uh, main hall, which she made in her kitchen, right? She takes it all the way down the hall and puts it um, onto the altar. So those are, that's sort of one of the more, um, sort of concrete ways that I saw there being really very little barrier between her role as just a housewife and her role as a sort of temple um, personnel. And in addition, the children that she raises are sort of belong to the temple in a sense. Um, and, and some temple wives are kind of ambivalent about that, but um, the, the congregation, the lay people that belong to that temple really do see those children as their children, you know, they look forward to, they call them, you know, you're our successor. Um, if there's a, if there's a son since he's really little and he's just sort of called that, that's one of his identities. Um, 
so even as mothers, their their identities and their um, labor really belongs to the temple community in that way. And so is the priesthood and I guess the bomorship we can call it, is that passed on from father to son and mother to daughter? How does that work exactly? Yeah, I mean, the sort of simplest um, ideal um, mode of succession would be um, for there to be a son, whether he's younger or older than his sisters. Um, and he would be, I mean, all of the parishioners would already recognize him as their successor since the day he's born. <laughs> and they're going to call him that um, as a kind of nickname. Um, and then he would he would grow up and he would go to college, maybe a Buddhist affiliated college. Um, he may live outside the temple for a while. If, if um, the temple has enough finances to kind of support that, he can go live abroad for a year. He can kind of do his thing. Um, but when his parents um, are no longer able to run the temple, he will come back and um, take over for his dad. Um, and at some point he'll find someone to marry, maybe at college, maybe when he was out in the working world. Um, and that person will come and um, take over the temple with him and she'll be the, the Bomodi. Um, but of course, a lot of families that does that's not exactly how it unfolds. Um, sometimes there is no son, and in that case, often it'll be um, the uh, the daughter. Probably here again, the most ideal, simplest way would be for the daughter to to meet someone who wanted to be the pre- priest, and, and the temple family would adopt him as their son. Um, and that's how kind of family succession happens in other areas of Japanese society as well. They will just like adopt someone to be the son if they don't have um, a birth son. Mm. Um, and so then that couple will take over the temple. All right. And we keep uh, in the conversation, we we equate the bomori with the temple wife or the, the wife of the priest. But is that always the case? Is it exclusively a female role? Right. So that's become a little complicated in the last few decades. Um, It was a really complicated and interesting kind of public discussion um, in the 1990s, um, particularly in the Otaniha, one of the two major sects of the Jodo Shinshu, um, about really kind of driven by um, feminist concerns for kind of respecting the autonomy of the individual woman in this equation and giving her sort of equal status as the men. and some of that involved kind of um, recognizing and valorizing the, the domestic work that she does do. But at the same time, they wanted her to have a choice in the matter. Um, and it became very complicated, first of all, that this her choice to marry a priest was also a choice to become a religious professional in a particular uh, sect, Buddhist sect. Um, so there was some complication around, around that kind of de facto um, identity that she had taken on. Um, but also, um, if the daughter wanted to succeed and take over the temple, they the feminists argued that she should be able to do that just as well as a man could. And there had initially been sort of traditionally just some limitations on uh, women's ordination. They thought, well, they, she doesn't really need to get ordained. It's not like becoming a nun. It's succeeding the temple, right? You need a, a male a male successor. Um, so eventually in the 90s, that limitation was taken away so that a, a, a daughter or someone else could come in and inherit the temple as a full, full-fledged full uh, temple priest. Um, but then, as you pointed out, that that sort of complicates the definition of bolmori, which has traditionally been um, the female half of this clerical partnership. Um, so for a while, for still more years, they struggled and publicly debated sort of what to do about um, that and what 
if she got married, what would we call her husband? And so at this point, you can, um, if there's a female um, temple priest called a Jyushoku, um, and her husband wants to be the Bomori, he can. So there's no, like, really from a, a sort of legal um, procedural um, perspective, there's no limit on, those are not kind of legally gendered terms. So the, the head priest is the Jyushoku, it can be a man or a woman, and um, the, the partner of the of the head priest is a bomori, which can also be a man or a woman. Um, but in practice, it's it's pretty rare for it to work that way. Often, uh, if a woman becomes the head priest, um, her husband still may just be a salary man, may just have an, another secular job. It's, it's, it's much more rare for him to become sort of her assistant and running the temple. That one, that one still hasn't take, uh, caught on. Okay. And I guess virtually all of the, the bomori nowadays are, are female. Is that correct? That's still, yeah, that's still for the most part true. All right. Okay. Um, I'd like to talk about an idea that you discuss in chapter three, uh, that for the bomori, home economics is an expression of faith. And through the everyday tending to the temple, they perform a sort of religion which helps build connections between the community, the temple, and the faith. Uh, what did you mean by that exactly? Yeah, um, I found, you know, to the extent that I was able to do some historical uh, research on this, um, what I found from just before the contemporary period um, or the modern period were these um, sermons that had been um, uh, given to temple wives in the Edo period. So I think the earliest ones I found were from maybe the 1700s. I think there's some from the 18th century, mostly from the 19th century. Um, And I think it seemed to belong to um, a larger genre of sermons in the Jodo Shinshu and the true Pure Land tradition um, that um, these um, priests would go around and just travel around and give sermons to local um, temples or associations or confraternities. Um, And they had sermons that were sort of based on the particular demographic, like, you know, a sermon for a housewife, a sermon for a layman farmer and a sermon for, and they had a sermon for uh, temple wives and sort of were trying to um, articulate for her the, the particular spiritual religious value of the work that she needed to do in her social position. Um, and so these, these um, sermons um, really emphasized, I mean, kind of good regular neo-confucian kind of values for for what a, a wife should should be and really kind of equivalent to probably a samurai wife which was interesting um i mean it emphasized frugality and just sort of being grateful and how to kind of be kind and generous to her in-laws who she needed to take care of and of course how to raise her children to also be grateful um, and all of that was kind of in the context of the gifts they had received from amida um, and so again in this tradition there's really no kind of need for individual practice to attain salvation um, because that's impossible. All that there is, is sort of this absolute radical reliance on Amida's compassion. Um, and that, so that means that really all, the only religious agency is Amida himself, right? And so everything that they have, the fact that their sort of karmic conditions led them to be born in this temple, um, and which is a nice place to live, right? I mean, that's, it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful place. And they sort of, these sermons from the early modern period emphasize the kind of gratitude that she should feel um, for having received these gifts, which were really the gifts um, from Amida, but also sort of materially speaking, they're all gifts from the lay people or, or things that were built on the donations of lay people who gave those gifts out of gratitude to Amida, right? Like why else would you bring something to the temple other than kind of religious piety, or at least that's how these, these sermons framed it. 
So there really was this interesting emphasis on her material um, connection to the Buddha and um, just kind of, yeah, the material manifestation of that karmic connection that she had um, to Buddhism and to the Buddha. And then kind of in turn, how she should express gratitude for that connection um, by, you know, being a good steward of all of these gifts that the lay people bring, you know, out of gratitude to the Buddha um, and to the temple. And then she, which she gets to enjoy because it's her kind of special fate to be a, a religious, uh, a temple resident. Um, so I found that in these, these uh, sermons and um, I kind of asked my informants, you know, whether they see that as part of their role or their identity as a temple resident. And I got such a wide range of responses. So it was really interesting. Um, I mean, some women were absolutely um, adamant that that was the case. And of course, the sort of special status of a priest economically has changed over time because, you know, in the early modern period, they were um, sort of exempt from the the class system that was enforced, you know, um, uh, during the Edo period. Um, like priests were kind of a special class. Um, and so um, that language was more likely to be used in those sermons from the early modern period. Um, but in post-war Japan, temples nonetheless are also, are, are continue to be kind of have a special economic status um, as sort of um, uh, um, like incorporations for the public good kind of thing. So um, some of the women actually did derive a sort of sense of vocation or distinctive kind of obligation um, either to give back to society or in some cases to give back to Amida. So those were kind of some of the responses that recognize their economic status as kind of tax exempt individuals or at least individuals who don't earn their salary in the usual transactional way, right? Who don't have um, material subsistence based on like, I clock in, I clock out and, you know, my employer gives me money kind of thing. So it was one of the major ways that they kind of articulated their distinctive um, status or identities as religious professionals. And so for the temple families, do they have any sort of private income themselves or are they completely dependent on the donations of the community? Yeah, it really depends on the size of the temple. Um, there's more and more uh, sort of work being done now on, on Buddha, temple Buddhism, uh, um, as Stephen Covell called it in his book, um, in contemporary Japan. Of course, some some temples in the countryside um, where it's well known that Japan is kind of depopulating, um, they have this aging population and younger people to the extent that they exist tend to move to the cities. Um, so they just don't have the ritual work or the numbers of parishioners to subsist just on that kind of temple income. So um, in those cases, the, the usually it's the the man of the house would go out and, and, and have a job. So the most common jobs would be um, a civil servant, or if they can, working for one of the bureaucratic offices of the Buddhist sect, um, or a teacher or something like that. Um, so it just really depends on the size of the temple. Some temples are are so big and busy that they actually have to hire other priests to help with that regular work. Um, but it really depends. One of the sentiments that I found really interesting uh, that she wrote about in the book is that the Bomari uh, in a certain ironic way, become the face of of the temple and become kind of the de facto religious uh, figure in the in the temple. Because when the priest is out doing his priestly thing, she is the one who's there to welcome the people and and speak about religious things. How what does this look like in practice? Yeah, that was something really interesting. Um, I mean, if 
we really we really tend to think about like being stuck at home as like you know that that got, that constrains a person's I don't know status or freedom of movement or right exercise of autonomy like she's stuck at home and she can't leave and literally you know the translation of her title Bolmudi is to, to guard the temple um, so she's really the last like she's got to stay there you can't leave a temple unattended that would just be um, bad form and not good for um, you know. The spread of Buddhism and for it to repay your, your debt to Amida, you have to have someone there at the temple so that if anybody comes in to make a connection, that someone's there to host them and that they feel inclined toward Amida and toward Buddhism as a result. So someone's got to be there at all times. And um, it's the husband's job or privilege, depending on how you look at it, to go out and do things. And so she really has to be there. And then, of course, there's the sort of more universal, like if she's got young kids or um, elderly in-laws to care for, she's also also sort of tied to um, the temple for those reasons. Um, but as a result, um, if the husband is not there, she's the sort of, she's the adult uh, that's hosting the temple. And so she's the person that people encounter. So um, in some ways, far from being a kind of, um, I mean, she's not like locked in a closet inside of there, right? She's the person that's opening the doors and hosting people for tea. Um, and her house is a public place, right? Her house is a temple. So people do come in. Um, I mean, lay people might come in to just give an offering to the, the Buddhist image, or if there's, um, if they have a, uh, graves or um, um, a reliquary or something like that in the temple, they may come to visit that. Uh, they may come just to talk to her or ask for her advice about things. Um, they, She, of course, also handles all of the deliveries and things like that. But in a sense, it, it does have her, um, her kind of constant presence there um, is a really important um, aspect of the, the temple being an open place, uh, open to people making connections to Amida. And she wants to kind of, or her, her job is to kind of inculcate um, or inspire those who come to feel that gratitude to Amida to kind of uh, bring them into that, um, that kind of economy of gratitude. Um, so yeah, that is a really important part of her role. And then um, she sort of becomes the face of the temple, the representative of the Buddhist tradition. Um, sort of from nine to five every weekday. <laughs> Many of the people that you spoke to said that uh, they don't really feel qualified or that they don't know enough about Buddhist philosophy or, or, or Shin ideas to be able to really um, perform their role in any sort of deep, meaningful way. Why do you feel that this was such a, a common sentiment? And what are they doing to prepare themselves for their position and, and others who were also in this position? Yeah, that's really interesting. I think, um, I mean, I would, you know, drawing from just like the background research that I had done um, and, you know, my reading about these uh, these sermons, um, I would sort of ask them, do you see this as a form of propagation? Because that's kind of the, that would be the, the term that we would use for, you know, even what they're doing is just pouring tea. And, you know, when I had read these early modern sermons, that's what they said. They're like, you know, just pouring tea, that's making a, a karmic connection to Amida. So like, that's a really important religious function. Um, but if I use the word propagation uh, with with these temple wives, they tended to get yeah, to be really def deferential and just sort of say, well, no, I'm not like, you know, I'm not a teacher or I don't um, I don't know enough to really explain Buddhism to anybody. Um, they for the, the large majority of people that um, that I talked to really did want an opportunity to learn more. Um, and, you know, sort of ironically enough, they they were stuck at home. So they, they couldn't go, you know, study or um, get a degree or go to seminary. Um, 
And that, that again is a really individualized um, situation. Like some families would be just so happy that the, the Bomori wanted to learn more about Buddhism and take the initiative to go get, for instance, her initial ordination, um, which in the Jodo Shinshu is a really simple thing. It's like a two day um, just to take the Tokudo, the really initial ordination, um, but also to go study and do seminar or something like that at the seminary. They'd be really glad for her to do that. And of course, they would pay for it with temple funds and they would figure out someone else to stay at home while she's out doing that. Um, some of that can happen with, you know, depending on the generations, if if her mother-in-law is still healthy, you know, she's able to go out and, and do this stuff and leave her mother-in-law in charge. But in other places um, where you might say there's a much more conservative sort of sense of gender roles, they didn't see the need for that, right? They were like, well, all you do is serve tea, so we don't need to like pay a bunch of money for you to go to this um, workshop. Um so it really is very individualized, but most of them really did express a desire to learn more. Um, and um, they're basically probably their main kind of educational um, outlet would be the um, the Bomori associations that they're a part of. And, you know, that that varies regionally. Some places have a really active Bomori association and others, they're just the temp- temples are so far apart or whatever it is, they don't get together as often. But um, that would be just, you know, a, um, an association led by other Bomori that would um, put together workshops um, on, on topics that would be helpful for her to know about, um, to do her job better. And at workshops, those kind of things, you would, you would see um, topics like grief counseling or spiritual care, or whatever the kind of... Um, I don't know, new developments and um, kind of uh, lay um, interacting with lay people and what they thought Buddhism should be able to offer people who come to the temple. And is there any sort of, I guess we can say apprenticeship between uh, the the senior Bomori, I guess we can say, and, and the the daughter or the, the daughter-in-law who's going to take her place eventually? Right. Yeah. So, you know, as you can see from my last answer, there's really no sort of required formal like training for her to get an actual religious education, although she may, she may want to do it. And it's kind of an option. Um, The only kind of really required training is, is for her to watch her mother-in-law and and do what she does. So this is an experience that I think probably used to be much more universal for um, like young wives in Japan. Um, a generation or two ago, especially if they were going to move into um, their in-laws household, that they would kind of get acculturated, you know, into the the ways that household does things, um, the way they prepare tea or, you know, clean the kitchen or arrange flowers. Um, but a temple wife, a young temple wife still kind of has this experience. And so again, the, the, um, the type of experience that that turns out to be is it, there's a wide range, right? Sometimes it's really nurturing and this really great mentorship. Um, and, uh, you know, she comes to kind of relate to the mother-in-law as, as a second mother for her. And then of course, at the other end of the spectrum, there's like the tyrannical mother-in-law um, who just has no patience for the daughter-in-law's shortcomings and, um, and a really interesting kind of you know cycle of tyrannical mother-in-laws uh, came up in my, in my field work that, you know, some mother-in-laws are sort of felt like they needed to um, haze or initiate their daughters-in-law because that's what happened to them, right? When they were young wives and they were sort of like, well, this is just how you, you have to bring her up through this hardship by inflicting this hardship on her because that was had been their experience. Um, I think the a lot of daughters-in-law don't 
quite grasp how much more involved it is to be a temple wife, uh, especially if they came from outside of the temple. These days, it's about, um, I think now it's still roughly half of temple wives uh, were born in a temple themselves and then marry uh, a temple priest, you know, usually in that same sect, there's kind of a, 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 a social network where they'll connect to somebody and then marry and they know what they're getting into. But these days, about half of women came up um, in a lay household. So they don't exactly know what to expect. Some of them think it's really interesting and really intriguing. Some of them are terrified. Some of them are like, this is great because I know at least we'll sort of have a place to live in a, in a constant income. So just show me what I need to do. So again, there's sort of a, a broad spectrum of attitudes toward this. Um, but they really often don't, if they came from a lay household, don't quite grasp the the magnitude of the domestic duties <laughs> that they'll have to adopt when their mother-in-law sort of retires um, and just the hospitality that they're going to be responsible for, um, particularly during the kind of yearly rituals that the temple hosts. Um, most funerals uh, are done um, not in the temple these days, but sometimes they are. Um, and just the kind of constant um, personal, interpersonal relationships that they have to maintain uh, with parishioners and the leaders in the parishioner community um, to just kind of keep those good, good relationships going. So it's, it's a lot of work for them to learn all of those ropes. Um, and basically their mother-in-law is their teacher is who they have to learn them from. So um, it can be really complicated, that relationship, of course. Mm. Yeah. And you talk about, uh, you know, many of the Bomori come from very diverse backgrounds, some from lay families, some from uh, priestly families, some from secular non-religious families that just all sorts of backgrounds that are, are finding themselves as, as Bomori. And uh, some of the women you describe in your book were highly educated and had very strong career aspirations. And many of them seem to be grappling with the new identity of, of a Bomori and that this is now going to be their life for uh, the, you know, the rest of their lives. Um, how do they start to take on that identity? You know, again, there's such a wide variety of experiences. There's so many factors that it depends on. Um, I mean, I think probably like, you know, every marriage just has such a different sort of constellation of, well, what is the mother-in-law like? What are the finances? You know, there's so many um, variables. Um, if they come from a lay family, um, again, if, for instance, in the scenario in which the, the son's um, parents are still relatively young and healthy, right? Then they, then she has some years to get used to it. And and often, especially if she has a if she has a kinder mother-in-law, um, she'll sort of be gradually introduced into, you know, all of the things that are going to be expected of her. Um, and if they have the leisure to sort of live outside of the temple for a number of years, they might, the couple might just go and stay in the temple during, during like those busy seasons when there's a big um, ritual that needs to be hosted. And then she'll just kind of intern or um, apprentice with yeah, her mother-in-law. She'll start to learn the names and faces of the, you know, um, the Buddhist women's association, for instance, that might be um, affiliated with their temple. So a group of lay women that help out a lot and are really active. So she'll start to learn um, how those folks do things and, and how to handle them. Um, she'll learn just what needs to happen on the day of a ritual. Um, and so then they can, she can kind of gradually um, become trained and also still kind of have her space from the temple for a while. Um, but often, so it's usually the point at which the, the son's parents become unable to do this stuff on an everyday basis that they kind of ask for the son and his daughter to, to go ahead and, and inherit, to take over. Um, and then at that point, you know, she sort of takes the mantle and um, 
often it's also the lay people help to um, train her and kind of acculturate her into that, um, the way things are done at that temple. Um, even if she wasn't a lay woman growing up, if she grew up in a temple, it may just be done very differently, you know, in the temple that she grew up in. So the lay people often know more than her, which I think can be really intimidating. Um, and so they kind of are in charge also of, of helping her to learn the ropes. Is there any sort of resistance um, when the, the older Bomori in the temple decides to retire, I guess you can say, and, and the new Bomori takes over? Is there any sort of difficulty in bringing herself in the community? Yeah, I think um, often there's just a big um, sort of social and generational gap, for instance, between the young Bomori and, um, you know, the congregation that she's supposed to be responsible for. Um, in some cases, she'll be from a whole other region of Japan where like the accent is totally different and the dialect is really like hard for her to get. And so she has a really hard time kind of relating to, you know, these parishioners. And she also feels like they know more than her um, in some ways about what, she, what she's supposed to be doing. So that can be really difficult. Um, I think um, probably increasingly there are just a lot more um, f- factors that are sort of changing um, in terms of the demographic and economic shifts um, in Japan um, that also inform that handover of the reins from one generation to the next. Um, a lot of rural temples are just not going to be viable for much longer in places that are really depopulated. Um, so those are all still considerations that are going to play into that um, into that. But um, definitely if she has grown up, you know, just in a lay household, having all of her choices before her, um, she may very well want to delay that um, succession as long as possible. You talked previously in the beginning of the interview about uh, some women who have become Shin priests themselves. Um, I like to ask if you could share some of their stories with us and the the path that they've traveled to become this, why they decided to become Shin priest and any sort of difficulty that they've encountered along the way. Well, in a very small number of cases, I think women, um, although this, this does happen for sure, um, just come, uh, you know, out of a sense of just wanting to do it. So they didn't necessarily grow up in a, a temple family, um, but they really like temple life. They really like Shin Buddhism and um, they want to be more active and feel like it's something that they can be good at. So there are women and that's a completely, that that uh, vocational path is open to women now too, to just go um, enter the uh, sort of seminary and get your, it's called a Kyoshi degree of religious instructor degree. And then you have the, um, the, the next step would be to find a temple that needs a head priest. And so that, you know, if there's someone without a successor, they may be happy to have a woman take over because at least that person wants to do it. Um, or there might be an empty temple or something like that, that the, the female priest feels she can revitalize. That's the less common route to becoming a female priest, but it, it does happen. Um, for the most part, um, as it has been in the you know many hundreds of years of Shin Buddhist history, um, it's because she grew up in a temple and you know, needs to kind of protect the temple for the next generation. And if she doesn't have a brother or her brother doesn't want to do it, um, you know, it's increasingly the case that the daughter will just take over uh, for her parents. Um, And yeah, it's not always a a simple choice because again, you know, it comes back to that earlier uh, question you asked about sort of then who's the Bomori, right? So she either has to do it sort of entirely on her own um, or, um, has to maybe, you know, her mother, if her mother's still around can kind of help her with the Bomori 
job, the sort of domestic dimension of, of, of a temple, of temple work. Um, and that does happen quite a lot. Um, but there's still, it's still sort of a, a sentence that doesn't have an ending. <laughs> Once the, the, the daughter takes over, it's like sort of then what, right? Does she get married? And then in the meantime, what does her husband do? Um, and will she pass it on? I mean, it, the, the way it's supposed to end is that she then has a son who will take back over and it'll go back to kind of being transferred along the male line. Right. So it's still kind of just like a bracketed occurrence where the, the woman took over for a generation and then it goes back um, as soon as there's a son available. Right. Um, so that's that's generally how it happened. It happened uh, in the greatest numbers during um, the war uh, when there just simply were no men. <laughs> there were no male priests to succeed. So a large number in both the Honganjiha and the um, Higashi Honganji or the sorry, the Otaniha, um, both. Um, in both cases, just at all of the temples, there simply weren't enough men to run the temples. Um, and so whatever woman was available in the family would just sort of do it. And that was kind of an interesting discovery in my fieldwork as well, that um, I would be talking to people and they they would sort of casually mention, oh, yeah, well, my grandmother ran our temple or, oh, my mom did this for a couple of like a decade or so until I got old enough. And you're thinking, wait, what? Like, I thought there were no, you know, I thought there were no female priests. And as I looked into it, um, it basically just happened like during the 30s um, and 40s on a kind of de facto basis. They might not even had got uh, the, the women. Um, so the wives or daughters who were filling in for their husbands um, or fathers uh, may not have even gotten ordination. They were just doing it. And so that was another thing that led me to sort of see that there's really this kind of de facto on the ground recognition of them as temple professionals, regardless of any kind of, you know, seminary or training or licensure to be a priest, that just someone who resides in the temple has enough authority or expertise um, to, to be, you know, they, they work as a priest and, and will take them in, in the absence of um, a, a male priest. Uh, so that happened quite a lot in the, in the thirties and forties. And eventually, um, in the case of the Hongan Jiha, they went ahead and um, made it legal for women to become priests and, and left it that way. And the um, Otaniha on, on the Higashi side, they um, let uh, women become priests only as needed, sort of like in the absence of a male successor. And that kind of in the absence of qualification stayed on the definition of female priests until the 90s. And that's sort of one of the things that gave rise to this feminist movement in the Otaniha in the 1990s. Mm. And is there any reason why this feminist movement has taken place in the Taniha as opposed to the other branch? Yeah, I, I don't have like a really good answer for that. It's a good question. Um, there, there's, a, there's a lot of sort of... Um, ground level um, social reform movements in the Otaniha, not just around feminist issues, but around um, Buraku issues, which is uh, this class of people who's, uh, you could call them outcasts, they've been discriminated against historically in Japan, um, and other sorts of things, especially in the Otaniha. And all of these kind of movements for social reform were really allied with one another in the 80s and 90s. Um, and so th that's one reason why it was just a, a lot more visible in the Otaniha. Um, in the Honganjiha, the stereotype at least is that there it's just sort of a more conservative uh, world um, institutionally, but they, they actually never did have that restriction on women's ordinations um, that the Otaniha did. So there wasn't quite the, the, um, 
the reason or the occasion for um, female priests or, or temple wives to kind of rise up and call the institution on this sort of blatant discrimination. Um, technically, women could, since before the war, just go ahead and, and become a female priest. Now, on the ground, it doesn't mean they had a higher status or anything like that. They would still, of course, you know, return the temple to the to the male heir as soon as their son came of age, things like that. But there wasn't that like legal legal restriction on uh, women becoming priests in the Hongganji. Yeah. And speaking of the, the kind of feminist pushback against this, uh, you know, tradition of androcentric institutions in Otaniha, wh- what would be at the top of their list of demands? Yeah. So, you know, it's really interesting. I don't think they were all or are all in agreement <laughs> on what, you know, the, the best way for the institution to recognize the role of women is a really interesting debate because, you know, it's feminism is complicated. And um, I think they certainly, first of all, could all agree on wanting to remove that restriction on women's ordination. So if women wanted to ordain at the same age, for instance, a, a temple daughter wanted to ordain at the same age as her brother, like, of course, she shouldn't be restrained from doing that. Um, if she wanted to become the head priest of a temple, she should be able to do so without any qualifications, right, on her authority. So not just in absence of a male successor. Um, so that much was agreed upon. Um, but the, the question of like how to define Bomori, the temple wife, was something that they really never came to consensus on. You'd have feminists sort of, you know, formulating it in different ways. They wanted to give status to the position. Um, they wanted the institution, the religious institution, to recognize um, the Bomori on some kind of equal footing with her husband. Um, but they weren't quite sure how to formulate that because, you know, her status is kind of contingent on that married relationship, right? So they they really struggled with how to how to um, give the Bomori a status that was somehow independent, right, and individual because she would come into that role by marriage, right? By marrying her husband, who was a temple priest. Um, So some women sort of wanted to make it a requirement of being a Bomori that you would have to get ordination yourself, right? So that you would be really a fully qualified and recognized religious professional. But at the same time, they thought, well, we can't require everyone to do that, right? Because if she's doing it because she's married to someone, you can't require her, right, by virtue of being married to get ordination, because that, interestingly, infringes on her freedom of religion, was one of the arguments against that. Um, So at this point, they've just kind of um, encouraged the sect to, you know, make it as easy as possible for local Bomori and their local temples to get as much education as they want or to get ordination and to think about all the kind of material and structural, um, you know, barriers that there might be to Bomori getting a better religious education or being able to leave the temple to take ordination and to try to relieve those barriers um, as much as they can. Um, how do you think that the position of Bomori will look in the future? What, what types of challenges will they have in the coming years ahead and how might things change? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, I looked in the book a little bit at the the sort of feminist movement and how or whether it really affected the sort of everyday practice of or the everyday experience of Bomori, you know, in far flung areas, right away from the um, more cosmopolitan areas where a lot of this feminist these meetings and whatnot would take place. Um, and it was sort of mixed. And I I definitely also noticed a kind of generational shift back toward a more I don't know if conservative is the right word for it, but a, a sort of um, um, conciliatory is the right word for it, but they sort of didn't feel the need to be activists anymore. So there was this generation of um, 
feminists who, who did all sorts of things. They would do like consciousness raising groups in the 90s and like bring their kids and read books and talk about how they related to their experience and then how they should speak truth to power and go to these um, uh, the, the meetings of the governing bodies of the sect and, you know, tell them what they need to do and submit petitions. They submitted petition after petition. Um, and then as those women kind of went into their retirement phase and their daughters-in-law or the middle generation kind of took over, um, it seemed as if they kind of, they lost the sort of activist urgency. And so they see their roles maybe in a slightly more conservative or, um, more conservative uh, way that they really are just like the wife to the, to the head priest and they should help support the temple in whatever way they can or support the, the work of the head priest or support the work of the sect. Um, so I have noticed a kind of, there's like an ebb and flow, I think of like the feminist consciousness um, and feminist activism in the Otaniha. Um, I think the other major thing I discovered was that um, even for women who had really, I think you could say obtained a kind of feminist consciousness and um, sort of aroused a desire for individual freedom and autonomy and self-determination, you know, based on sort of their post-war liberal education and on their friendships with these really impressive feminist activist women. Um, even for those folks, it was a really difficult thing to put that feminist consciousness into practice um, as a temple wife or a temple daughter. That um, that eventually that desire to be really totally self-determining and kind of chart your own future was outweighed at the end of the day by their obligations to other people. And, you know, for a temple daughter or a temple wife, it's not just your family members that you're obligated to, but, you know, all of the parishioners who belong to your temple, right? You can't sort of let their religious organization die because you don't want to marry somebody that they felt, you know, according to my informants. Um, and in addition to that, I mean, some of them would talk about just the many, many generations of, you know, temple professionals from their family that had, um, you know, taken care of the temple and protected the temple all the way up until now. And it's just, they couldn't really bring themselves to be the, the last <laughs> you know, protector of the temple and then kind of just go do their own thing. Right. So um, I would say it's complicated. And I think, you know, um, there's some compartmentalizing of different kind of political ideologies or aspirations or ideals, depending on what situation they're in or what people they're relating to. Um, but I, I really think that the, the relationships and the obligations to other people um, weigh really heavily on, on those who, are, who live in a temple or born into a temple. I want to thank you again for coming on the podcast. Uh, we've been discussing Jessica Starling's recently published book, Guardians of the Buddha's Home, Domestic Religion and Contemporary Jodo Shinsu. Before we go, I'd just like to ask you what's next for you. So what I'm working on now is um, another ethnographic research project um, that actually I was led to by my informants for this first book. Um, I kind of want to, you know, I think this book looks at Buddhism as it's practiced in the temple with women at the center, right, of, of that temple world of practice. So you kind of shift the center of gravity from the main hall over to the sort of domestic side of the temple. Um, but in my, in my work going forward, I think I'm going to follow those women and the people that they introduced me to out of the temple um, and see how they bring their Buddhist uh, faith and their social networks and their um, ideas um, and sort of moral frameworks uh, out of the Buddhist temple and into the world. Um, so some of my informants, you know, while they struggled 
at home in the temple with all of those competing and overlapping kind of social obligations and political ideals uh, and felt a little bit constrained sometimes by this by the temple space and by having to stay at home. Um, one of the ways that they they um, act on those ideals is by leaving the temple when they can and doing sort of social work um, and volunteering um, and sometimes even activism for various kind of liberal social causes. So my next book is going to be um, about um, in particular, um, sort of Sheen Buddhists working on issues of discrimination. And I'm focusing in particular on Hansen's disease, which is also known as leprosy. Um, a lot of my informants go to these islands that were formerly sort of state-run leprosaria um, before the war and even after the war for several decades, uh, where those suffering from Hansen's disease were quarantined there. So, you know, my Buddhist informants go and visit these places, and I'm really interested in the kind of... Um, moral encounters that they have there and how they bring their Buddhist principles into conversation with um, other secular values and um, and people who are suffering from basically social stigma and social suffering. All right. Well, that sounds very interesting. We're definitely looking forward to see that. Um, again, thank you uh, for coming on the podcast and I hope you have a nice day. Thank you so much. You've been listening to New Books and Buddhist Studies with Alex Carroll. If you're interested in learning about other new books and Buddhist studies, head over to newbooksnetwork.com or search for New Books Network wherever you get your podcasts. Audio used with permission from Musique Delicieuse and is taken from the song Small Flower by Para Furcuva.